0: We tend to avoid the things that we are allergic to, right? We tend to avoid the things that we are allergic to, or at least we should. Uh, just in uh, recent months, uh, I discovered that I have a food allergy. Now, food allergies are not uncommon, nor are they terribly pleasant. My food allergy that I discovered just in recent months is I am allergic to bananas. So, if at tonight's community dinner, I was to eat said cursed fruit. My face would blow up like a balloon. I will go into anaphylactic shock and we will have to get some EpiPens going. It's a serious thing. You know, that which you are allergic to, you need to avoid. So knowing those things about myself, I avoid it. Most of us in this room are allergic to prayer. Most of us in this room are allergic to prayer, and therefore, we avoid it. I do. Why? Because prayer forces us to slow down, to stop, to be still, to acknowledge our dependence upon the Lord and our reliance upon His mercy and His grace. If you're not careful, time in prayer, you will find yourself having your priorities and goals and aspirations and your agenda turned upside down and reordered. So we avoid it. My friends, we are allergic Prayer. And so we avoid it. Is there an antihistamine for us? Is there an EpiPen for us? In a way, there is, if we come to rightly understand what prayer is and what a sweet privilege it is to actually come into the presence of God in prayer. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, we're pressing on in this series. We are in Matthew 21, picking up right where we left off last week, Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 12 and moving on through verse 17. Not a long text, pretty astounding though And what's happening there. It's really, you might say, the Jesus' ultimate mic drop. Uh, they're in the cleansing of the temple. Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's the first of the New Testament books, first of the gospels that we have. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. Hear now God's word. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that He did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to Him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Well, let's pray together for a moment. Lord, thank you for these few minutes that we have here. Uh, at the start of a new week, memory is very fresh of uh, the week past, the one that's in our, our rear view mirror. And uh, for no few of us, that has had quite an impact upon us for good and for ill. Uh, And now we're looking not just in the rearview mirror, but in the windshield at what is coming. And for no few of us, we are perhaps looking forward to that or perhaps dreading it. Um, We we come. We we are are here with a lot on our minds, a lot on our hearts, a lot on our plates. We've heard a lot about prayer. Uh, It doesn't take much um, to have heard at least a, a thing or two about it. This might be the first time we've ever set foot into a sanctuary of worship on a Sunday morning, and we've still heard something. We may have grown up in the church, baptized as an infant, and brought in every Sunday morning. We can't remember or have a very faded memory of any Sundays, really, that we weren't here or somewhere. And, of course, we have ideas about prayer. We ask, though, that for all of us they would be true they would be rooted in what you would have us to understand uh, and to be living out when it comes to this matter of coming into the presence of a a living God and communing uh, with, with him. Oh, would you speak to us now through your word, by your spirit. We plead with you asking that, and we ask this in none other, the only name that we have to ask, Jesus Amen. Well, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise to you that this text and the events that Matthew is describing here that we just read are a continuation of of the events that we read about last week. Or just put it another way, the cleansing of the temple is really, in many ways, you could think of it as the sequel to Palm Sunday. One leads right on into the other, even chronologically. On that Palm Sunday, on that, that Sunday morning, the king comes into his city. That next day, the Lord comes into his temple. All right? And the question might be well worth our asking when Jesus, the Lord of the temple, enters into those precincts, comes into that place that was the center of, of Israel's identity and worship, what does he do? He cleanses it, he purifies it, and in doing so, he shows very clearly just whose it belongs to, just whose temple is this. His actions show that very, very clearly very clear. A few things that we ought to know before we go any further in, our, in this, this uh, time uh, about the temple itself. In Jesus' day, specifically, in Jesus' day, this, this temple that Herod the Great had built there on, on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. The first thing is, I don't well, it has to do with architecture, frankly. It, the temple in Jesus' day was a series of courts, one outside, another outside, another outside, another. You could think of it as like boxes inside boxes, okay? And, and by the label of each box or each court, the name that that was given told you who could go that far and then no further. And that comes into play in, in these events because what's happening in, here in Matthew 21 is the action is taking place in what's referred to as the court of the Gentiles. That was as far as, as they could go. Okay? That, that, that needs to be understood. We could come back to that in, in a few minutes. Something else that's worth understanding, not just architecturally, but now perhaps you could say culturally. Um, the Passover by Jesus' time uh, was, well, it was a time, the atmosphere was full of a lot of commerce, I'll put it that way a lot of buying and selling, a lot of trading, a lot of exchanging. Now, the reason for that was because of the number of pilgrims traveling from far, far away coming to this annual festival there in Jerusalem. And so because of that, currency, coins, money had to be exchanged. You couldn't just bring in the currency, the pagan currency of the outside in there into the temple precincts to pay those temple taxes. So that had to be exchanged. That's part of what's going on. Also, not just did money have to be exchanged, but animals had to be purchased in order to make these sacrifices. Again, because these are travelers, pilgrims, coming from great distances on foot, on foot, in most cases, uh, there into the temple. So the problem, just understand this, the problem, and you can see the way Matthew writes this, the problem is not really with commerce in and of itself. The problem is the site, the location, where the commerce, the buying, the selling, the trading was taking place. It's taking place within the temple precincts, which therein causes, if I can put it this way, a violation of the temple's purpose. It's being compromised. It's thinned out. It's weakened. It's watered down. And that cannot stand. And so Jesus comes, sees what he does, and cleanses, purifies temple the lord that day that monday morning came into his temple jesus comes into his temple and that impels his people rightly understand what's happening that impels his people to pray jesus coming into his temple impels his people to pray how where why do you make that isn't that a bit of a leap Not necessarily when you understand some of what's going on here. What's going on here? You see, Jesus' zeal, his great zeal for his Father's glory, his great zeal for his people's hearts. I said last week that uh, there's something extraordinary happening there on that first Palm Sunday when you consider that it's the only time we have any record in the gospel of Jesus writing anything. And so it's great intentionality when Jesus mounts that donkey and comes down from the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and rides up into Jerusalem. It's great intentionality there with what he is doing. It's, the only, again, the only time that we read of Jesus riding anything. On this Monday morning, after that Sunday morning, there's something else that's the only time we read of happening in the gospel records, and that is Jesus exercising violent force. You need to ask yourself, why? This really blows up our idea of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is anything but, that Monday, meek and mild. Why? Zeal for his Father's glory, zeal for his people's hearts. We understand that double sense of zealousness, That impels his people to pray. His zeal for his Father's glory, his zeal for his people's heart, such that that demanded the cleansing of the temple that day. It had to be. Let's look at these two things in turn. First, his zeal for his Father's glory. That's at least partly why we see this cleansing of the temple. What When Jesus showed up that day, well, actually, when he saw what he saw on Sunday, came and did what he did on Monday, what was it they observed that set him on edge, if you will, in a holy sense? This great gulf, this terrible, horrific gulf between what he observed and what should have been. So what then did he observe? An atmosphere of utter distraction. just absolute distraction. No, nothing was focused in upon what it was supposed to be and who it was supposed to be focused in upon. Now, some would say that there's a lot of corruption going on, a lot of upselling of, uh, in, the, in the trade, in the exchange of the currency and the animals. That is possible, but we actually don't see that in the text. It's possible. Frankly, it's likely, given human nature, but we don't actually see it there in the passage. What we certainly see is not so much corruption, but confusion. Think of the atmosphere, the... the uh, 1st century historian, Jewish historian Josephus, we have record of, of a Passover that he observed there in Jerusalem one year where some 225,000 lambs were sacrificed. All right? And it's, this is happening in the temple precincts. Now throw in all this buying and trading and selling of it. It's like the chaos... Of the New York Stock Exchange transposed into a barnyard that's now also a slaughterhouse. Imagine the sights, the sounds, the smells. It's an air of confusion, of distraction. But in addition to that, there's an air of, of an atmosphere of hardening, a hardening of hearts. Because you think in terms, and this is quite clear, we see it again and again in the gospel records, that for those, the people had gone through this routine for centuries of the Passover sacrifice, both in the tabernacle and in the temple, and the different phases, if you will, of the temple. No different, maybe even worse at this stage. And that had begun to take on a sense of rote and routine. Or just not just the centuries of the people, but just uh, you think in terms of year after year after year of of you and and your family coming to temple, coming to to make the sacrifices, to give of the, the offerings. And sadly, tragically, that pattern had begun to take on a sense of presumption. We have the temple. We have the temple. We have the temple. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live. We have the temple. We must have God's pleasure because we have the temple. This error of, of presumption. So this, this horrible gulf, this air of distraction, this atmosphere of confusion, and then this presumption and this hardening of heart, that's what Jesus sees. Now, what should have been? What should have been? Well, what should have been was due weight being given to god in his glory that that as as those sacrifices were every single one of us every cut of the knife is being made and the blood is pouring out that should have been a visceral signpost to every man woman and child within the temple precincts that my sin is that horrible but praise god he has made a way The Lord is our salvation. As David said time and again, he is our rock and our refuge, our strong tower. Praise him from whom all blessings flow indeed. All do wait given to him. What a relief that should have been to the people there in that place. And not just that, but changed lives. So do wait and change lives. That should have been something that Jesus would have seen there. That that every single offering that was being made, every temple tax that was being paid would have been an expression of a heart that is glad to be able to give and to respond in that way. Lives of trust, lives of obedience, lives of, of imitation reflecting something of the grace and the mercy that they had received. That's what Jesus should have seen there within the temple that day when he arrived on that Monday. There's this horrible gulf, this, this canyon between what should have been and what he observed. And so he cleanses this temple, at least partly because of his zeal for his father's glory. And that zeal has not abated Jesus' zeal for his Father's glory has not lessened in the least. And we as his disciples, we as his followers, should share in that zeal that he would be honored, that he would be glorified. What is the first prayer of the Lord's Prayer that we read just a few minutes ago? Hallowed be your name. That is the first, it is the foundational, it is the fundamental beginning of all Christian prayer. May you be reverenced, may you be loved and honored and cherished, may you be given your due in every place, in everything, in every way, wherever I set my eyes, indeed wherever you set your eyes, may your name be hallowed across this land, in the, yes, this culture, even this pagan culture that we live in. May you be hallowed. In our churches, oh, that your name would be hallowed. Within our households, our families, within the life of the person whose face I see in that mirror every morning. Would you be hallowed? where it all begins. That ought to be the burden of our hearts and the focus of our prayers. Because that Monday morning, when the Lord came into his temple, his actions impel his people to pray. With that sense, that burden upon our hearts. But that's not the only thing that we see here we see not only Jesus cleansing the temple because of zeal for his Father's glory, but equally so, and just as stirring and just as needed to be heard, is also zeal for his people's hearts. Again, what did he observe? Again, it's a great gulf, great gulf, but in this case, not just between what he observed and what should have been, but between what he observed and what he was ushering in. Let me read the text again. Again, it's not long, so it's certainly hardly out of turn to read these verses again. Uh, Verses 12 to 17, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers and the blind." And the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are, these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Again, this great great gulf between what he observed and what he was ushering in. What did he observe? Disinterest. Disinterest towards the, the needs, the longings of the outsider, the, the seeker. Why does he refer to the temple as a den of robbers? Again, because of that air of presumption. We have the temple, we have the temple, we have the temple. It doesn't matter what we do. So that sense in which you can just kind of go back and hide But robbery, why that? Thievery, because in essence, what they were doing was robbing, stealing, taking from the Gentiles, from the nations, from those who would come in, looking, seeking the true and living God, robbing them of any and every real opportunity to encounter him, to worship him, to know him. And in essence, in doing so, they were communicating, you're not welcome here. You're not welcome here. For all practical purposes, a disinterest in the outsider, the seeker, and a callousness towards the crippled, the handicapped, the one suffering, the broken. Yes, indeed, there were restrictions in those days in the Levitical laws, and it was applicable in that, in that time, there in, in the temple restricting people who are suffering in those ways from coming and doing but, but so much within the temple grounds, but this had gone too far. And you see it you know, in the indignancy, is that a word? The indignant response of the religious authorities to Jesus as he heals them. You see this callousness, this coldness, this hardness in their hearts an utter failure to see that their physical struggles, the blindness, the lameness, whatever it was, was meant to, in a sense, be a picture of, a signpost towards their spiritual, our spiritual crippledness. And they're in all of our shared need of Jesus' healing. There's no sense of that whatsoever. No sense of that whatsoever whatsoever. They couldn't see it, and they didn't care. That's what Jesus sees. That's what he observed. Now, what did he come to usher in? Oh, what change, what a glad welcome he comes to to usher in. The prophets spoke time and again of a day that was coming, when the way would be open for all the peoples, all the nations, of all tribes and tongues, to come and access to the living God, worship of the living God, would be completely free. And Jesus, in his coming, has ushered in at that moment, that day, that time, such that all that they said was acceptable, all the confusion, all the corruption, all the disinterest, all the callousness, all that the people said was okay and acceptable, he is rejecting He is rejecting. He's giving this, he's open wide, glad welcome to the people, and yet also at the same time, or with that at the same time, extending the opportunity of true, deep, profound wholeness. A wholeness. I don't know if you you know this. I I didn't know this until this past week studying in this passage. This is the last recorded healing that we have of Jesus in his earthly ministry. And where does it happen? Right there, in the temple precinct, Uh, it's a astounding thing. Astounding thing. Oh, actually, now I just thought of an exception to that very rule. Whoever that commentator was was wrong, because he did heal the guy's ear. Okay, that's never mind. Um, (laughs) Second to last healing. (laughs) Still dramatic. Jesus, in doing that, is not only rejecting everything that we in our fallen, broken state would otherwise um, reject, he is rejecting everything, excuse me, he is accepting everything that we would reject, he is rejecting everything that we would accept, he is accepting He is accepting, he is welcoming in those who are suffering, those who are wounded, those who are broken, and assuring them in me, in me you find the healing, the rest, the salvation that you are looking for. He cleanses the temple because of his zeal for his Father's glory and his zeal for his people's hearts. He shows himself He shows that just in this, in so many other ways, but just in this, a a literal and metaphorical turning of the tables, flipping everything. This is the inside-out, upside-down kingdom that Jesus ushers in. He drives away, I can put it this way, he drives away so much of what we welcome, posturing, pretending, pride and presumption he drives away so much of what we just live with what we welcome and accept and at the same time he welcomes what we tend towards rejecting and driving away transparency honesty vulnerability openness this is the upside down kingdom the turning of the tables to both to both The insider and the outsider, he says, come as you are. You have nothing to bring anyway. If you thought yourself to have nothing, it's okay. If you thought to yourself to have something, leave it behind. Come as you are. Come as you are. Lay your burdens down and come to me. When we hear that invitation, really hear it, that despite all that he knows of us, he loves us still. And, oh, he knows us well and loves us to the uttermost. We hear that invitation and hear it rightly. There is a pull there upon the heart with that sort of invitation, that call. That Monday, the Lord comes into his temple that should stir his people to pray. Let me end with this. With the birth of our grandson. It still seems strange to say that. I'm getting used to saying. With the birth of this little guy, I am finding myself uh, interested. My, my fascination with children's literature rekindled. How could it not be, right? Uh, and I'm really looking forward over the years t- to come of sitting down and, and with this little guy on my lap and our, sharing that time together and reading his favorites and mine uh, together. Now, one of mine, Wayland, if you're listening, uh, is, is The Runaway Bunny by uh, Margaret Wise Brown, her 1942 classic. If you don't have it, you need to get it. It begins, this, it's a simple story. Of course it's a simple story. It's this, little, this young little bunny who decides for whatever reason to run away. And his, his mother says, if you run away, I will run after you, for you are, this is the only reason given, you are my little bunny." And so begins this game of chase, every page as you turn. It's a game of chase. But no matter what forms this little bunny takes, whether a fish in a stream or a crocus in a garden or a rock on a mountain, mother bunny finds a way of chasing him down and retrieving him, such that by the time you get to the end, the little bunny is just beside himself and just, in a sense, throws up his little paws and says, shucks, I might as well just stay where I am and be your little bunny. Yeah, that's right. A lingering over, just leisurely, slowly lingering over each page. It will take you at most four minutes to read this book. And yet, the message of that book has profound staying power with the reader. I can promise you it's been years since I last opened that book. It's a story of tireless, persistent, relentless love. And it is a beautiful reflection, an echo. Of the tireless, persistent, relentless love of God our Father for us, His people. The zeal of the Lord for the hearts of His own. His heart, if I can put it this way, His heart for our hearts. His welcome to our approach. His delight to hear our footsteps coming closer. Did you hear the call to worship that we began this service with a little while ago? Read verse 4, Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Do you know that of yourself this morning? Do you know he feels that deeply so towards you this morning? He delights in you. He delights in you, He exults in you, He is overjoyed by you, why? Because you're His, child of God. Child of God, He is for you in the deepest possible sense. He is with us in the most astounding sense. Yes, he is zealous for his great glory, but oh, is he zealous for our deep, deep good. And with that in mind, oh, how he pursues us. And oh, how he will stop at nothing to clear the obstacles out of the way that stand between us and him. Jesus, the Lord of the temple, came into his temple. And that ought to drive his people to pray. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, would you help us to see your heart and your actions and every one of your healings and all the miracles. We can see your compassion. And we can see a foretaste of what is coming. But in the cleansing of the temple, oh, would you help us to get a glimpse of your great zeal for your Father's glory and your zeal for your people's hearts. And oh, that that would impel our poor hearts towards prayer. And how we pray with a shared burden with you for your Father's glory in how we pray, but in why? Because the burden that you have for us that frees us, that impels us, that compels us, that drives us, that ought to thrill us, excite us, fill our hearts with wonder that we have such a Savior who is for us and with us. Oh, would you make us into a people of prayer. Truly so. We pray this, this in your name.